Hi, folks. I'm Nate Swick, your host of the American Birding Podcast, and I'm going to take a little time up top to talk to you about the American Birding Association's end-of-year appeal, which is running right now. This is our, our biggest fundraising effort of the year, and a strong December sets us up for a great 2018, during which we can continue to provide this great free content to birders around North America and the world. We are not professional fundraisers by any means. We are birders just like you, but we love creating these resources for you all. And even a small donation can really help us do that. Maybe a dollar an episode, $2 an episode. That's American or Canadian dollars. You know, we're not picky. Any of it helps. You can go to www.aba.org slash appeal2017. That too is important. Don't forget it. If you want to make me look really good, you can say that the podcast sent you. Uh, thanks for a great year and thanks for your continued support. On with the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and we've done it. One year. At around this time last year, we first launched this podcast, and I can I can tell you that it is incredibly gratifying to see the response we've gotten. I feel like we've learned a lot in that time about how to create compelling content and especially how to make that content sound good. I think that's probably the more difficult part. I want to thank all of you listening, whether you've been with us since the beginning or you came along sometime in the last year. Thank you for for helping to make this thing a success. It's been a lot of fun. On to the topic at hand, snowy owls. This has already been an up year for snowy owls in many parts of the ABA area, particularly the east and the midwest up around the Great Lakes. This is a bird that, above all, seems to make people crazy, and not always in the positive sense. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about that here. I, I'm sort of torn about it, to be honest. Um, there are a few birds that are such a ready-made spark bird as the snowy owl, and these sorts of movements, that these sort of eruptions that we're seeing this year tend to make a lot of new birders because people will be, be motivated to make an effort to see a snowy owl in ways that they might not for, for other you know, equally interesting birds, well, equally interesting to birders, I should say. But these birds seem to attract the sort of behavior that, that incites flame wars across the birding internet. Accusations of disturbing the birds in the name of photos, typically uh, better looks, or, or maybe I'm being stereotypical here. Well, there are there are some things that we know about snowy owls thanks to initiatives like Project Snowstorm. Uh, we know that the birds that come south are are healthy, not these starving waifs as we once thought. Um, so they are so they're able to handle a little, you know, some, not a lot, disturbance, and and oftentimes they sort of seem to put themselves in places where that sort of disturbance is a foregone conclusion. They love uh, airports for one, a lot of disturbance there. On the other hand, we also know that they are they are much more active at night than we had assumed perhaps before. There was always the assumption that snowy owl was a bit more of a diurnal owl. It's not not true. Um, and they are they are traveling these huge distances every night to find prey in some cases. Um, so they, they definitely need to relax a bit during the day, and we, we need to let them, even if they are acting sort of sort of active during the day. Anyway, Project Snowstorm has published a snowy owl-specific etiquette article. I would like to direct you there. I'll put the link in the show notes. It all boils down essentially to be cool. You know, don't be a jerk around snowy owls. Don't push it. The ABA also produces a, a code of birding ethics that's more kind of general with regard to being conscious of how birds are acting and how birders can approach them. 
Uh, we want to make sure that that stuff gets out there and feel free to use it if you are in a position where you kind of want to head off some of this bad behavior. I'll have the link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, we want to make sure that these owls stick around so they can be the spark bird for a whole bunch of other birders this winter. Snowy owl, incidentally, one of the most evocative bird common names out there. I have to think that that, that is undoubtedly part of its appeal. But there are a lot of other issues surrounding how we name birds, how we talk about those names. Birding editor Ted Floyd and I are going to dig deep into the idiosyncrasies of bird names, and we're going to do that right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of December 2017. Big news out of New Brunswick, where the ABA area's first record of missile thrush was discovered in Miramichi on the central coast of the province. Obviously a first for New Brunswick and a first for Canada as well. This is the largest species of European thrush and one that was not on a lot of people's radar for showing up on this side of the Atlantic, as it's still pretty rare even in Iceland. Fortunately, the keepers of the bird, the people uh, on whom's property this bird is being seen are very bird friendly. A lot of folks heading up to New Brunswick to have a look. Hope it sticks around for them. Also noteworthy from the other side of the continent, a gargany was found at an urban park among a bunch of manky park ducks in Santa Barbara County, California. That is an ABA code four bird. That sort of location would immediately suggest questions about the bird's provenance, which which have occurred. Those questions are being asked, but there have been some suggestions that the age of the bird and the plumage wear, it's a it's a young male bird that's pretty worn, are suggestive of a wild origin. I don't know, birds like this are always going to have questions, but for what it's worth, many California birders are treating this as naturally occurring. A young green-breasted mango, another ABA Code 4, was visiting a feeder at Quinta Mazatlan in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas, that's Hidalgo County. This was the first record of the species in the ABA area since 2009, so we've had a bit of a mango drought here. First records of note for the period include two provincial firsts from Newfoundland, a black vulture in Bergio, and an ear grebe at Peters River. Also in Alabama, a Harris's hawk in Mobile is a state first, and the latest in a small movement of the species previously this winter, Harris's hawks have been recorded in Kansas and Nebraska. This is but a taste of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period for the whole hog. Check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. Or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. What is in a bird common name? It's sort of a question that many of us might not think about immediately, but there's a lot going on in those lists that we're so familiar with. Capitalization, honorifics, patronyms, how names are assigned, how they're changed. The names are an important part of how we interact with birds around us, though perhaps the least considered part of that. Uh, Birding editor Ted Floyd and I are going to fix that today. I know that both of us have some opinions about how we present the identity of avifauna And we are going to get after that. Thanks for joining me again, Ted. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. Let's let's jump right into it. Uh, You are a traditional print editor. I'm an editor too, but sort of on the more fluid online world. There's been a lot of discussion over the last few years, maybe, about capitalization of common names. So where do you come down on that? And is it is it different than sort of the standard ABA practice where we where we capitalize all the common names? Right. So I would, first of all, say that this issue goes back 
a lot longer than <laughs> several <laughs> Maybe years. So. One that I've been aware of my entire birding life. So that takes us back into the early 1980s. In a nutshell, and I'll try to be very, very brief about this, the standard operating procedure, if you will, for the birding and ornithological communities in North America is to capitalize the standard names. So if the bird is Canada goose, we capitalize the C in Canada and the G in goose. That's how birders and ornithologists do it, but most newspaper editors and actually most science editors outside the realm of birding and ornithology yes. capitalize the C in Canada, but not the G in goose. So if you read publications of the American Association for the Advance of Science or um, of one of the British journals or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, they are not going to capitalize the G in goose. So yes, we birders and ornithologists do it, but most of the rest of the English-speaking and English-writing world does not. I'll come out and say that I I prefer, and maybe it's just because I'm I'm familiar with it. I prefer the capitalization, the the proper name in uh, any sort of writing I do. I like the way that it stands out. Uh, I like the way that I, I notice it more. So, wh- how do you feel about that? So I'm still evading your question. I realize <laughs> uh, I will say that it is our standard. It is the way we do it. It is something that a lot of people feel strongly about, and and really more to the point that a lot of people are familiar with. So. Changing it willy-nilly would certainly rock the boat. It is something that would occasion an awful lot of hand-wringing and wailing and gnashing of teeth out there. I mm-hmm. think both of us know that. It has. Yes, a little while ago when Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the one that I thought uh, Some people would say reverted. Others would say changed. I would say reverted. Yep. <laughs> capitalizing the uh, standard English names of organisms to uh, to not capitalizing them. There was a fair yes. pushback from the from the birding community. I, I guess, though, I'll, I'll stop evading your question and, and, and say the following, and this may sound dissatisfying, but but here goes. <laughs> I, I personally don't favor capitalizing the names of birds, but I recognize and accept that that is the way that our community does it, and I don't think that it's my hill to die on. <laughs> All right, well, you know, sort of philosophically, what is it that you prefer about keeping them as a lowercase? Sure, so a... A bird, or for that matter, a, a plant or a, or a mammal, is, is, a, is a thing. It's an object. In, in English, we refer to these as nouns, and most other languages have constructs like nouns, and we tend not to capitalize words like dog or cat or human. Those are all species, by the way. They have scientific names associated with them. We also tend not to capitalize things like street and house and sky and even cumulus cloud. That's a very technical term, but we don't we don't capitalize it. So I see Canada goose and cumulus cloud and big red house as all objects that that uh, that we create words for. And I don't willy nilly see a reason for putting a capital letter on, on those things. Well, I would say I see them as a name, like Ted Floyd or Nate Swick, and therefore. Uh, it would be appropriate to capitalize them. I guess the confusion species that people always bring up is is blue jay. You know, there's a the blue jay, capital B, capital J, and there are also dozens of blue jays, lowercase b, lowercase j. I think in context, it's often very easy for us to determine which one they're talking about. So maybe it's not a problem, but I think it's just more satisfying to me when I see it as a capital letter. And and once again, I mean that could entirely be because that's what I've grown up with. That's what I've always seen. That's you know, what I, what I know, there's a inertia to it. 
You mentioned context and uh, something I've been sort of investigating on my own over the years, discipline time allows, is the question of whether there really is ambiguity in these names occasioned by capital letters. So uh, somebody is referring to a blue jay and really means Stellar's jay or Woodhouse scrub jay. And I can find very, very, very few instances in which there's true confusion well, certainly fair. create them we can certainly invent and imagine and concoct them but i but i find that when somebody is referring to a blue jay and they're in the let's say southern sierra nevada where there are no capital b blue jays so cyanus cristata you know that they're talking about stellar's jay or perhaps woodhouse's jay or something like that so yes i get that the potential for confusion is there i think that it is very rarely at best ever realized well, you know, maybe on a pelagic, you know, oh, we had a great Shearwater day. Oh, which one are you talking about? <laughs> maybe sure, no one would say sure. great Shearwater, capital G, capital S day. Maybe people wouldn't speak out of like that. that. But... <laughs> uh, little turns and then, and, and yeah, yellow warblers and right, so right. forth. I, I, I get. Yeah. Well, um, that brings up the sort of next, the next thing I sort of want to talk about this idea of, of honorific names. We do capitalize names, bird names that are people's names. Cooper's Hawk, for instance. There's no ambiguity on that one. Uh, we, we capitalize that. Even New York Times will capitalize that. So how do you feel about honorific names just generally? I, and I will say, leading off, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of honorific names. But I'm, I'm curious to hear your opinion. I tend not to favor them. I realize that a few of them are, are well entrenched. I have a hard time imagining that we'll ever change the name of, say, uh, these aren't birds, but... Uh, Douglas fir or doll sheep, those names are so strongly associated with the organism that I don't think we'll ever change it. The problem with what we're calling patronymics or honorifics is that they're so, um, I don't know, useless for one of the better <laughs> I, agree, I agree, yeah. They totally don't tell us that. anything about uh, the organism. The sharp-shinned hawk, even though not really talking about the shin of the bird anatomically it's something else that's a really useful name i agree and if we change the name of the cooper's hawk to i don't know you know the, the long-tailed hawk or the even just the the big fierce hawk that, yeah. Yeah, that would be a more useful name i think there's a, a colloquial name that's like blue dasher or like blue dasher hawk that always struck me as kind of a neat name that's what it does it dashes i, I would list uh, <laughs> in, in, in blue dasher right away yeah, so in general, I find that those patronymic or honorific names just aren't particularly helpful. I also feel, and this is getting a little bit into the realm of ideology now, but they they reflect on uh, maybe a, an older currency, an older way of, of doing science and thinking about the object around us, uh, the idea of commemorating some you know ancient ornithologist. Yes. I, you know, I, I get that as a sort of semi-historian. I also question really how appropriate that is to the wants and needs of nature lovers in the, in the 21st century. If we're going to try to really get people fired up about conserving what we call Cooper's Hawk, and that's a very noble agenda, I think that people might get more excited about, as you said, the, the blue dasher than their kind of, frankly, boring name like Cooper's Hawk. I want to say just one other thing about, <laughs> since you brought up Cooper's Hawk, and this just has to do with the arbitrariness of this name. I, I believe that its scientific name is Accipiter. It's either Cooperi or Cooperii. I can't remember right. Now. And, and then the um, the olive-sided flycatcher is is the other way around. It's Contopus, either again Cooperi or Cooperii. And it's funny that these names, even the scientists, can't can't agree on how to how to Latinize. 
<laughs> Cooper, Coopers, Cooperii, Cooperi. There's just a lot of ambiguity in there. And that's fun for people like you and me to kind of ponder over the proverbial, you know, late night discussion at the bar. But I don't think that it really helps much at all with getting, you know, the very valuable rank and file nature enthusiasts increasingly fired up about nature. Yeah. And I, I'll go even farther and say that um, the, the honorifics are almost a scourge in some places. We don't have to deal with it so much in, in North America and the Americas in general. They've, they've done a great job naming names with all sorts of these wonderful colors and, and descriptions and things throughout the Americas. Uh, but in the old world, especially, and I think particularly in places where there were a lot of European colonies, uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, there are so many honorific names of all these European biologists and ornithologists who collected all these birds and they have no connection to the places where these birds are living, to the habitats where they can be found. And I keep, and I always think about like, you know, we're trying to encourage birding in a lot of places, trying to encourage this birding tourism industry in a lot of uh, developing countries, of course. Um, what do those birders think when they are having this sort of connection to a colonial past, which for a lot of them was not a great not a great time in their history. I'm thinking of things like, you know, Varro's Eagle Owl and, and Hildebrandt's Franklin, uh, things like that. I would extend that also to some of the uh, kind of wacky place names that are given to birds. You know, yeah. northern and southern are, are bad enough, but it's a running joke among birders that if you just go through a list of the uh, warblers in North America named for places, every single one of them is inappropriate. <laughs> Cape's warbler is rare in Cape May. Connecticut warblers, you know, not really in Connecticut, they breed in Michigan and places like that. Tennessee warbler, Nashville warbler, the list goes on and on. So, yes, they are sort of throwbacks to an old, and I think in some cases, as you said, sort of you know, hurtful and offensive or at least problematic way of doing things. And really, they're, in the case of the patronymics, just uninformative. And in the case of geography, often just counterfactual. So the names are at best useless and in some cases actually just downright misleading. Yeah, well, I will say that in the United States, uh, in the Americas, uh, at the very least, a lot of our honorifics uh, have something to do with North American ornithologists, uh, people like uh, Wilson and Audubon and, and Bachman. You know, at least there, there's a history there that is, is closer to the place where the birds can be found as opposed to, uh, I don't know, Leviance Cuckoo. <laughs> I, I get that. But by the way, just to, to back up a minute or two here, you, you mentioned or you just alluded to the sort of a tradition of, of naming birds and cultures other than the, the Western and especially the, the American or, you know, when I say I mean the European American tradition. So I want to quickly point out to our, our listeners that there's a, a wonderful article about this actually in the, the August issue of Birding by Frank Keim. And except the names given to birds by people who speak the Yupik language in uh, Alaska and also the Russian Far East. And, and these names are very evocative, very highly descriptive. And the bulk yes. of them are, and I can't think of a better word for this, they're scientific. That they, they really get at some nuanced uh, aspects of the biology of these birds, including, by the way, certain aspects of biology that we in the West didn't discover until the past 10 or 15 years. It's, it's really remarkable uh, just how scientific these names are. And then Frank, at the end of his article, mentions that the one thing that you will never find in a Yupik bird name, as, as rich and as varied and as diverse as they are, uh, is the the honorific or, or patronymic tradition. The names are always commemorative of something about the bird itself, as opposed to the person who noticed the bird. 
And as and as a birder, I I like those names more. I just think that they're they're more useful, particularly when I'm birding in a place where I've never been before. You know, it's it's more helpful to me to look for a uh, or listen for uh, just for an, for a good example. I would look at the uh, the cysticolas, the East African cysticolas. I mean, there's just a wide variety of wonderful names, all having to do with their vocalizations. You know, singing and trilling and croaking and uh, burping and, and what I don't think that one's one, but off the top of my head, I was going to say my favorite, and it's it's the, the most familiar of all the it's cysticola, cysticola. We could talk about pronunciations as well, but. Yeah, right. That's another one. <laughs> the sitting sitting, uh, which is fairly common, actually quite quite common across uh, large swaths of of Europe. I just, it really does say zip, zip, <laughs> and and then just to uh, sort of play up this idea of what's in a name. You know, the the old name for that bird is the uh, the fan tailed warbler. Talk about mm-hmm. a, a hopelessly mismatched pair of names. So it's either zitting cysticola or cysticola if you prefer, uh, and then fan tailed warbler. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're going to go into um, horribly mismatched names, my favorite one is North American. It's uh, Olive Warbler. <laughs> not Olive, not a Warbler. <laughs> it's a terrible name. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of the things that I really liked about um, you know Frank's article in the August 2017 birding was the name of the, the Arctic Tern. What was it? It's, um, and I'm probably completely butchering this name, but it was uh, Takira Yuli. Maybe he, we they should have had like phonetics on here. Yeah. That's an editorial. Uh, criticism i suppose but it means a uh, dear little bird that is good at using its bottom to disadvantage others essentially it, it poops on people that come nearby <laughs> that's a great behavioral trait and really uh, it's evocative and it's really funny and memorable and it's all those things and again it really gets at a key aspect of the species biology anybody who's ever spent time in an arctic tern colony has been not only crapped on but also probably you know pierced at or, or poked at by the bill and you otherwise squawked at they're very aggressive around the colonies and then we have that name arctic tern well, of course the arctic tern spends a fair bit of its time in and around uh, antarctica there's also, yeah, at least half the year yeah and, and there is a, another bird called the antarctic tern just to complicate matters so yeah arctic tern you know it gets its one aspect of the species biology but there are other terns that are arctic and the arctic tern you know, is known to most of us in the mid-latitudes off uh, on pelagic trips and so forth so arctic tern is not the worst name out there by any means yeah uh, it's not a great name and i think that the yupik name is much better now would you capitalize arctic and lowercase tern <laughs> right so that's when we've actually <laughs> the official answer of course is yes capitalize arctic <laughs> As, as to what I would do, never mind turn, there's the question of whether or not to capitalize the word Arctic. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that, that's one that actually we're getting off track here, but that at birding we, we, we've discussed, you know, do, do we capitalize words like uh, West and East when they clearly refer to regions of, let's say, North America? And then is uh, Arctic sort of more of a, uh, I don't know, a, a region like Tundra or Taiga, or is it more sort of like a place like Greenland or none of it? And it, it we have these discussions all the time. But oh, see, this is why I say just just cut them off and capitalize everything. You don't have to have the discussions anymore. <laughs> capitalize dog, cat, cheetah, and human. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, maybe I would. <laughs> all right. Fair well, uh, you you mentioned early on um, Douglas fir. You know that is obviously a a a tree named after a person, but it doesn't have the possessive. Why are possessives so prominent in bird names, but not in other organisms? Well, that's an easy question to, uh, to ask. And uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a short answer here. <laughs> so in most of the rest of the naming conventions in our English language, we do not um, use the possessives like that. So think about from, from chemistry, uh, the, uh, 
the Erlenmeyer flask. We don't call it Erlenmeyer's flask. Bunsen burner. Think, think of that airport in, uh, in, in New York. It's not JFK's airport. It's JFK airport. Even with other uh, non-avian organisms, you know, we usually say Fremont cottonwood or doll sheep. But yes, we, we, we use possessives for, for bird names. So we say Woodhouse's scrub jay, not Woodhouse scrub jay. Or we say uh, Stellar's jay, not Stellar jay. That hasn't always been the case, actually. Uh, back in the um, sort of uh, earlier part of the 20th century, one of the major ornithological societies in America did not use the possessive. I haven't answered your question. The very short answer, and I've actually sort of looked into this again, sort of the, uh, the historian in me, is that it's a um, sort of a historical attempt to, uh, to Latinize the, the bird name. So the, the scientific names take what we genitive or the possessive case. We talk about Cooper's hawk, so we call that bird in, in quote-unquote Latin, either Cooperi or Cooperia. That's a, a so-called genitive or possessive. And that's fine. That's the way you do it in Latin, but that's Latin and it's not English. And I think that it's been sort of a mistaken application of a, an ancient grammatical Latin principle to, to modern English. And we wind up with something that in my mind is very kind of fussy and antiquated and, and more than anything else uh, affected in the same way that normal people wouldn't say JFK's airport or Martin Luther King's boulevard. I don't think that normal people would actually say Woodhouse's scrub jay or Stellar's jay. I, I think it comes across as fussy and, 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 um, and antiquated and just a little bit uh, affected. Some of the more controversial decisions of the uh, American Ornithological Society, the AOS, which, as you know, is the administrative body that assigns bird names in the Americas, has been the decision to retain some species names, even when those birds are part of a species split. So, you know, the standard operating procedure, the event of a species split is to assign new names to both species. But that isn't always the case, increasingly not the case, I would say, uh, which is how we end up retaining Canada goose, despite, you know, cackling goose being split off and Clapper rail, despite Ridgeway's rail. What, where do you come down on this? Do you think the AOS is making the right decisions to keep the old names when those those names are very well established? Short answer to the question is no. As usual, there's a little bit of nuance here. I will point out that in the uh, American Ornithological Society's now, um, formerly American Ornithologist Union's checklist of, of the birds, the, the, the big book, which was published in 1998, mm -hmm. it is actually stated unambiguously that when a bird is split, uh, it shall uh, assume two new names unless there are, uh, you know, powerful overriding reasons to the contrary. And I think the uh, case, the example given is a uh, was a split of one of the uh, the many many small geographic populations of the red-winged blackbird. The idea everybody says red-winged blackbird, and if you were to suddenly change the name of that bird to I don't know red epauletted blackbird or something like that, that that would just create too much mayhem and confusion out there. So I, I kind <laughs> of get that. Uh, on the other hand, I think that very few of these names really are in common parlance. Uh, so when the winter wren was split into the winter wren and the Pacific, I would definitely have changed the name of the winter wren to, I, I don't know, you know, boreal wren or forest wren. I, I, I'm just grasping for straws right here, rather than retaining the name boreal, sorry, rather than retaining the name winter wren and then uh, creating this new name, uh, Pacific wren, for only one, but not both populations. Joe Moreland, a, uh, an ornithologist and California argued that when the Canada goose was split, uh, the bird's two new species should have been called cackling goose, which is the name of one of our new birds, and honking goose. And I, I, I really like that. It, it tells yeah, us right. that one of them cackles and the other honks. Those are nice, descriptive, evocative names. You know, right. Canada goose is an odd name for those of us who live in, say, Colorado or North Carolina, where the birds, I assume there's ubiquitous year-round 
Yeah, American Lawn Goose would probably be the uh, more appropriate name. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Or just Lawn Goose. And part of my objection there is not just uh, semantic, but it's also scientific. I I think that when we split, let's say, bird name A into bird names A and B, we create this false thinking about the way that one population buds off or springs from another population. And that's really not how evolution works. Yeah, we need to recognize that that uh, that the two daughter species, as we call them, are on a sort of a equal footing in terms of their their evolution. And I think that if we were always just to split A into B into C, as opposed to A into A and B, we would promote better, clearer thinking about ecology. And and I will note, I think that maybe contrast something you said a moment ago. I think that the AOU now the AOS is paying attention mm-hmm. uh, and has taken some of this to to heart. Uh, I was very peripherally involved in some of the discussions about the split of the bird formerly known as the sage sparrow. Okay. So yeah. there was an idea there to change the, 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 that bird has been split into two species mm-hmm. now. Yeah. One has a wonderfully uh, evocative name of the habitat and the other is an honorific. <laughs> However, the new name is, 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 is good. You're talking about Oh, you no, know, I agree. I like Sage for Sparrow a lot. That's a that's a but, great but name. But instead of splitting Sage Sparrow into Sage Sparrow and Bell Sparrow, it was split into Sagebrush Sparrow and Sparrow. And I like the fact that the the old name Sage Sparrow now refers to that whole complex, and then Sagebrush yes. and Bell Sparrows are the two daughter species on sort of equal, if you will, uh, evolutionary footing with one another. Right. So that to me is a a welcome trend, and I hope that if uh, other splits coming up, I don't know, I'm picturing possibly white-breasted nuthatch or box sparrow, savannah sparrow. I'm just, you know, I'm not guaranteeing or promising any of those. Mm. But, but if those splits happen, if they are uh, uh, two-way or even three-way splits, that the, that the parent name will not be retained. By the way, speaking of multiple splits, I, I go back to the, the old solitary vireo, and, and I like that that was split into three different names. They yes, blew, agree. One uh, of they Cassins and Plumbius. But if we obtained, let's say, solitary for the eastern and northern boreal bird and then assigned new names, Cassins and Plumbius, I would have had a problem with that. So I, I like it when the old name is, it goes away, but it's still useful for referring to the entire group. So we can talk about birds, solitary vireo complex, but we have those different daughter names. Well, I will say that it is easier to tie something like the protection of sagelands to a bird like the sagebrush sparrow. Uh, the, the The line is very clear between the protection of those habitats versus the 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 birds that are they're living on those habitats, and that's a nice thing. Do you think that the AOS considers that when they make those names? Um, I know that they have considered a lot of factors when they've they've changed bird names. The the old squatch or long tailed duck. Uh, is uh, is one that comes to mind immediately. Do you believe that that is sort of a, a thing that they're thinking about? To the extent that I know the actual men and women on that committee, my my answer to the question <laughs> is yes. That these are thinking, thoughtful, worldly, sensitive, reasonable people who recognize that their decisions do have impacts on how we conceive and ultimately uh, understand and, and embrace and appreciate the natural world. So I guess the short answer is yes, that, that the real individual human beings on that committee, and, and by the way, on, on similar committees elsewhere, definitely give thought to the consequences of their actions. There are some rules that need to be followed just to prevent you know, scientific mayhem, but I think that there is a, a broad awareness that these names, as you said, really can make a difference. You use the example of Old Squire, Long-Tailed Duck, and I, maybe our uh, younger <laughs> listeners know that. <laughs> 
But uh, that was a name that I think many of us just thought was sort of entrenched forever, the, the old name of, of Old Squad. I think we very sort of just um, unthinkingly and reflexively used that name, which is, you know, simultaneously racist and sexist. Without thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, I just grumbled myself included about these sort of, uh, I don't know, just kind of, um, I don't know, uninspired new name, long-tailed duck. Right. Yeah. Well, Pintail was taken. So. Pintail was taken. There you go. And then that, that's another nice evocative name. But yeah, you know, I, I think that the, the motives there were uh, were the right ones. And that, uh, you know, what is it, 20 years later, however long it has been, that no harm has been done by changing the name of that bird. Nobody has died. And uh, to the extent that I think that the name is just sort of more appropriate and more inclusive and more culturally sensitive, those are all good things. Yeah. We give AOS a little bit of a little bit of stick here at the end, but I, I will say that we are in the North American birding community. Uh, the Americans, all the Americas, are really fortunate that the AOS does this work. Yeah, you know, I think that we we are better off than a lot of other you know sort of ornithological administrative bodies. Uh, we're very fortunate here. Not, not just ornithology, but I'll sort of refer to the uh, to the sciences in general. To me, it is so. Uh, I just have to sort of sit down and think about this from time to time. But just so uh, so wondrous and, and gratifying that. The, uh, the really legendary uh, ornithologists of our time are also, by and large, really good birders who actually yeah. <laughs> interact with and, and engage the, the birding community. There's a wonderful back and forth there, an interchange, I think a, a very healthy cross-fertilization of ideas and perceived and, and, and real needs. You certainly don't get that, I think, in, uh, I don't know, <laughs> biochemistry or, or new <laughs> physics. There's just nothing uh, that would compare in, in those. But by the way, I'm not dismissing those um, disciplines are very, very important. But the idea that you have a, uh, a give and take, a back and forth, sort of an ebb and flow between the, the amateur and professional communities, pathology, especially, as you said, in, in North America, is a very gratifying, I think, sort of wondrous thing. Yeah, totally agree. Ted, thanks for thanks for joining me. I, I don't know if we really affected any change here, but it was really, <laughs> really great to talk to you about, about bird names, about something that you know I, I know I think about you know, a fair bit. Thanks for having me. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. I mentioned this at the top, but I'm going to mention it again. The ABA is in the midst of our end-of-year appeal. If you enjoy this podcast and any of the other free resources the ABA provides, throw us a few bucks, helps us keep this stuff going. That's www.aba.org slash appeal2017. You can also join the ABA. We, lo- we love that too. The gift that keeps giving year-round. Get more information at aba.org slash join. A special shout-out to Matt Whitbeck of Cambridge Maryland, Emily Tornga of Nunica, Michigan, Pamela Paponi of Davis, California, William Mullen of Charleston, South Carolina, Gregory Jerzyk of Downers, Illinois, Robin Winning and Jeffrey Waterhouse of Santa Rosa, California, and Justin Lee of Yukon, Oklahoma, all joined the ABA recently and mentioned this podcast as a reason. That's, that's seven people. That might be a new record. Welcome to the ABA and thanks for your support. I know I'm asking a lot of y'all in this episode, but if you're feeling especially generous, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Your comments help us make this podcast better and help people find us. Thanks for that. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at aba. 
not to be confused with the American Bow Mastiff Association. That's Bow Mastiff is one word, the number one organization for fans of that dog breed. It in itself is not to be confused with the American Bull Mastiff Association, two words, the ABMA, which is a number two organization. That's how far I've fallen, folks. That's pretty close to the bottom of the barrel. I was only half meant to be a pawn there. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.